You are now listening to the Bayshore Community Church Podcast. Our mission is to connect to God, connect to people, and to serve the community. Thank you for joining us today and wherever you are listening. We hope that this message inspires you, encourages you, and transforms you. Our prayer is that this is just the beginning of a conversation between you and Jesus. Enjoy the message. Well, good morning, Bayshore, Millsboro, 1030. Good to see you guys. How many had a good week? Did you have a good week? So good to see you. So great to see you guys. I was at Fenwick Island at our campus this morning, 9 o'clock there. We had a great service there. Tons of people, new uh, people coming. Our Rehoboth campus is just growing, and the Lord's sending people here. We're just so glad you're here. And we had such an amazing night at the night of worship in Bethany Beach. I am so thankful for that event, and I'm so thankful for all our team that worked so hard. They worked so hard to get ready for that event. Would you give the uh, media team and the worship team a big hand? What a great job you guys did. We had just a spectacular time. Hey, listen, if you're new to Bayshore, uh, Karen and I would love and the rest of our staff to meet you next Sunday after church. We're having a welcome lunch. Just let us know before you leave today. Put it on the kiosk. We'd love to hang out with you guys and just get to know you a little bit and tell you a little bit more about Bayshore. We're in a series called uh, Road Trip, and we're actually looking at the story, the stories of what happened after the children of Israel left Egypt after the Passover, their road trip, and how they traveled through the wilderness, uh, and what the Lord was trying to do in them. We'd established as we started this series that the objective was not to get to Canaan, but the objective was to get Egypt out of them, to transform them. And so uh, what God does in our life is through our experiences, he conforms us into the image of Jesus. So today we're going to be looking at uh, another story. And one of the goals during this series is to give up complaining and grumbling. And uh, we're wearing these little white, uh, white little wristbands. If you need one, I think we got some more on hand. Uh, and uh, we're just loving, you know, I'm loving the reminder of that, uh, not to uh, complain. And uh, it's looking at, I look at that wristband, it really helps me. A lady told me at the uh, night of worship, she said, I haven't had to move my wristband all week long and she's had a great week not complaining and uh on the way down I got into bad traffic and I had to remove my wristband and um to that I didn't want to share that with her but I thought I better complain again to get it back on my right hand so when I showed up people would know it was on the right hand you know but I hope you uh, that's helping you it's helping me and I, I just want to become uh less complaining so we're going to look at one of the complaining stories there's three of them in a row and today we're going to be looking at exodus 17 verses 1 through 7 and we're going to be looking at this great story famous story and it's found in exodus 17 1 through 7 the whole israelite community set out from the desert of sin by the way the the desert of sin is not sin is in doing something immoral the word sin there comes from the word Sinai, and it's the desert right around Mount Sinai. Uh, Mount Sinai is also called Mount Horeb. So when you see the desert of sin, it means the desert right around Sinai. Uh, so the whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses replied, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to make us and our children and our livestock die of thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, what am I to do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord answered, go out in front of the people 
Take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. And I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and the water will come out from it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And uh, he did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. And they called the place Massah and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled, with, uh, quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? So this is a story where the children of Israel are, are complaining because they're uncomfortable. They're thirsty. They don't have any water to drink and they are thirsty. And so their response is to blame Moses, which is our response normally when we have difficulty in our life, we want to like blame somebody for that. It must be, you know, my spouse's fault. It must be my boss's fault. It must be my children's fault. We, we like to shift our uncomfortable feelings to someone else. And that's what they did in this situation. They grumbled at Moses and they were upset at Moses. But what we want to see in the story is how can we get to a place where we don't let our uncomfortable circumstances produce negative words in our mouth. How can we be positive people even in the midst of adverse circumstances? Well, this story has some really interesting things to share with us. The reason that they were where they were was because the Lord had directed them there. And that's a very important part of the story. It says in verse one, the whole Israelite community set up from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place. They're going to different places as the Lord commanded them. So where they are is where they are because the Lord has led them there. And so one of the things that can help us in our Christian journey is to remember when we are uncomfortable that God is providential and he is sovereign over where we are. You know, you can have a view of life that you are simply like a styrofoam cup on the beach blown by the wind across the sand. Meaning that your life is just a matter of fate, that things happen to you accidentally and your life is just sort of random. If you have a random view of your life, it's going to be hard for you to be positive when you're in a place of adversity. One of the things that can help us when we're in a discomfortable place is to recognize that God is sovereign he is providential over our life and where we are, we are because he has led us there. And that's liberating for us to know that, to know that we are where we're supposed to be. Now, here's an interesting thing I want you to think about. If you know that the Lord has led you where you are, when you're in that place, you can respond in a positive way. In other words, if you can't, if, if you, your view of how you got to be where you are will determine how you respond to where you are. Your view to how you got to where you are will determine how you respond to where you are. In other words, if I think that I'm just here accidentally and I'm here by some random, you know, fate and I am in this place because, you know, whatever, then it's going to be hard for you to see the Lord in your circumstances. But this text says that the Lord led them by command from place to place to place. 
And where you've been led in your life, the job you're in, the neighborhood you live in, the person you're married to, the people in your family, the things that happen to you, planned and unplanned, that the Lord is sovereign over that. He's sovereign over that. And that's called providence. Uh, and I was raised in a church environment. I was a Methodist and then a Pentecostal, charismatic. And we had no understanding at all of the providence of God. We had no understanding that God was sovereign in our life. We didn't preach about that. We didn't talk about that. Where we were, we were just there and, you know, trying to make it through. But if you look at your life as being under the direction of the Lord, then it will make a huge difference in your life. Let me give you a definition for providence. What is providence? There's a good definition, if I can find it here, that will help you with this. Here's what it says. Divine providence is the governance of God by which he, with wisdom and love, cares for and directs all things in the universe. The doctrine of divine providence asserts that God is in complete control of all things. He is sovereign over the universe as a whole. The physical world, the affairs of nations, human destiny, human successes and failures, and the protection of his people. This doctrine stands in direct opposition to the idea that the universe is governed by fate. Now, if you say, Pastor Dean, I'm not sure I can believe that God is in control of the affairs of my life. What are the options? Here's the option. The option, the opposite of providence is deism. Now, deism was what Thomas Jefferson believed. It's what a lot of people in the original founders of our country believed. They believed that there was a supreme being that made the universe, that God made the universe, he created the universe. And then God backed off and folded his hands and refused to get involved in our life. That God is not involved in the universe. He set up the universe like a clockmaker. He made the clock, he put the wheels in place, he put the laws of nature in place, and now God stands on the sidelines and he does not get involved in your life. He does not get involved when you pray. God does not get involved with the details of what's happening in your life. And I believe that that is a doctrine of heresy, that God is sovereign over all things, that he's directing all things. And uh, here is a wonderful quote that I think is really helpful by R.C. Uh, J.C. Uh, Ryle. He was a uh, an Anglican bishop in Liverpool back in the 1900s. Here's what he wrote. Listen to this: Nothing whatever, whether great or small, can happen to a believer without God's ordering and permission. There is no such thing as chance luck or accident in the Christian journey through this world. All is arranged and appointed by God and all things are working together for the believer's good. Amen. I don't believe in chance. I don't believe in fate. I believe that there is the hand of almighty God overseeing the details of my life. I believe that I am where I am because God has decreed that I am where I am. The children of Israel were there where they were in that uncomfortable position by God's command. There's a guy in uh, 
And actually the chaplain, Ben Patterson of uh, Westmont uh, Christian College in Santa Barbara, California. I heard him speak once, uh, actually on, uh, on media. I didn't hear him in person. But he said, he's, he told this story about this senator, this brand new elected senator that came to Washington, D.C. And he was a young man and he wanted to know how Washington, D.C. worked. So he went to visit this uh, seasoned uh, senator that had been in Washington, D.C. for decades. And the, and the seasoned senator lived by the Potomac River. And so this young senator goes to his house and they're sitting out in the backyard by the Potomac River and they're talking about Washington and how politics works. And about that time, a, a piece of driftwood floated by them in the Potomac and the old senator, senator said, you see that piece of driftwood? Inside of that piece of driftwood are about a thousand grubs and insects. And every single one of them thinks they're steering the driftwood. And he said, son, in Washington, D.C., every single politician thinks they're steering history. But I want you to know that there is a sovereign God, a providential God that's greater than we are that's bigger than we are, that's over the affairs of your life and what you're going through right now, God has something to do with because he is sovereign over all your life. It says in Romans 8, 28, and we know that all things work together for good for those that are called according to his purpose. And then verse 29 says that the things we go through conform us to the image of Jesus. So wonderful, wonderful principle. So I want you to think about that. I remember when Karen and I were, were uh, first moved to Pensacola, Florida, when we were going to Baba College. We went there in 1979, March of 1979. And we left uh, Sussex County here. It was a big snowstorm in March of 1979. And we left after that snowstorm. We drove to Pensacola. Where we first drove to Jacksonville, Florida. And then we had to drive across the Panhandle, Route 10, to get to Pensacola. And we got to Pensacola just when it was starting to get dark, and we were so excited to be in Pensacola. We wanted to see the Bible College. We'd never seen it before. We wanted to see the Bible College. So we stopped at this convenience store. And at the convenience store, we talked to this, uh, this guy. I went over and asked him, I said, do you know where Liberty Bible College is? The guy rolled down his window, and I said, do you know where Liberty Bible College is? And he said, I know exactly where it is. And he said, in fact, I'll lead you to the Bible College so you can see the Bible College. And as he spoke, I could smell the alcohol off his breath. He was completely drunk. He was inebriated to a degree I've never seen before. And I walked back to the car. I said, well, good news is this guy knows where the Bible college is. The bad news, he wants to leave there and he's drunk. So we're following this guy through the streets of Pensacola and he's swerving around. We're swerving behind him, you know, <laughs> following this guy. After about 20 minutes, we turn on Route 98 and he rolls down the window, puts his hand out and honks the horn and there's the Bible college. He knew exactly where he was taking us. Now, I want you to know that God is not a drunk. I want you to know that. If you didn't know that, he's not a drunk, but he knows where he's leading you. He knows what he's doing. He knows what he is up to. And you cannot be, and I cannot be without complaint if we're in a place where we are and we think it's by accident. 
But if we think it's by divine providence and God is sovereign over our life, then you can be in that place and you can have the peace of the Lord. You can have the joy of the Lord. You can trust the Lord. You can have faith where you are if you believe that you are where you are because God has led you there. Or you could be a deist. And what we are by default, by as many Christians, by default, we're deist. We believe that there is a God up there, but he doesn't really care about our life. He is not really involved in the details of our life. He's not really involved in the details of our grandkids. He's not really involved in the details of our children. But the Bible says in Isaiah chapter 59, verse 1, his arm is not short that he cannot save, and his ear is not dull that he cannot hear. God's hand is involved in your life, and God's hand is involved in my life. What are you praying, and what am I praying when we pray the Lord's Prayer every night? What are we praying? Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Have you ever thought about why you pray that? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The word earth there is the word for dirt. Uh, And some people believe that when you're praying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, you were made of the dirt, you were made of the dust of the ground, you're actually praying, Lord, your kingdom be done in my life, in this little person of dirt. And when you pray that, and you get on your knees every day, and you're going through what you're going through, I pray that every night, as I mentioned, you know, many times, Karen and I get on our knees, and we pray the Lord's Prayer together at night. And as we're praying the Lord's Prayer, we pray the kingdom come, thy will be done on earth in my life. My little, I'm a person of dirt. Your will be done in my life. When I get up the next morning and I encounter what I encounter and I go through what I go through, I have to say there is a God who's providential over my life and he's in charge of this. I am where I am because of his will. You cannot be... And I cannot be people of, we cannot be people of peace. We cannot be people of positiveness if we believe in fate and chance. God is not a God of fate and chance. God is a providential God. I was going to Fenwick Island this morning, driving down there to preach. I get down there about 820 and they have a pre-service meeting and I'm, I'm driving down 113 and, and my windshield, I can't see on my windshield, it's just dirty. And I'm like, what the world is wrong? And so I, I push the, you know, the, the uh, windshield fluid and I'm, you know, getting the windshield wipers going and I'm cleaning. It's still dirty. And I keep like pumping. I'm like using up all my windshield fluid. Can't get it. I said, what's wrong? It's so dirty. And I couldn't see. I thought, what's wrong? And then I, I took off my sunglasses. <laughs> and when I took off my sunglasses, the windshield was completely clean. I went fishing yesterday in the Lewis Canal with uh, Gene Burton and another guy. We had a great time catching a bunch of croakers. I had, a, I had the best time. But all day long I was catching fish and I was touching my glasses. And my glasses are all grimy. And it was my glasses that were dirty. And I was seeing the world through dirty glasses. And when you look at life through the perspective of luck, accidents, poor fortune, I tell you what, the Bible warns against going to a fortune teller. 
You know, there's a lot of stuff in Deuteronomy and stuff about fortune tellers. And uh, you know what? You know what's worse than that? Believing, not going to a fortune teller. I'm not going to ask you if you've ever gone to a fortune teller. I've never gone to a fortune teller and all that. I've never, I don't know, I've never talked about going to a fortune teller in church, but you know. But you know what's worse than going to a fortune teller? Is believing in fortune. Don't believe in fortune. Believe in destiny. Believe in purpose. Believe that God has called you to be where you are. You say, Pastor Dan, do you have any verses of scripture for this? Well, I got some. Let me read one to you. This is a great one. Psalm 103, verse 19. This is a verse on providence. This is a verse on sovereignty. If you put in your, if you Google sovereignty of God, providence of God, you'll come up with this verse. One of the verses you'll come up with. And I'm going to read it in the New Living Translation. The Lord has made the heavens his throne. And there he rules over everything. God rules over everything. God rules over over everything in your life. Well, what about the life of Joseph? The life of Joseph in the Old Testament. Remember, he was sold into slavery by his brothers. He ends up working for Potiphar and his wife has the eye for Joseph and he's a fine looking man he's got the Brad Pitt look and and uh she's like wanting him and and uh and he runs from her and then he ends up in jail and he goes through stuff in jail and then he interprets a dream for a baker and a wine maker in the jail and they forget about him injustice 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 for 20 years Everything went wrong until one day the Pharaoh needed someone to interpret a dream and the winemaker remembered there's a guy in the prison that interpreted my dream and Pharaoh's dream is interpreted by Joseph. There's going to be seven years of famine and get ready for the famine. And the Pharaoh takes off his ring and he gives the signet ring to Joseph and Joseph becomes second in control of Egypt. And when his brothers show up to get grain, here's what Joseph says to them. Wonderful thing. Joseph says to them, verse 4 through 8 in Genesis 45, Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one who sold you into Egypt. And now do not be distressed, do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. How did he interpret the, the, dish, the, the, the details of his life, this being sold into slavery? How did he interpret that? He didn't interpret it poor me. He didn't say, oh man, this is a bad luck I've had, bad fortune I've had. But Joseph said, because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you for two years now it says in verse six there's been famine in the land for the next five years there'll be uh, no plowing or reaping verse seven but God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by great deliverance verse eight so then it was not you who sent me here but God Amen. Joseph believed in the providence of God Joseph believed that God was in control so it's a wonderful thing to think that God is in control. And I want you to just, just take a moment here, lift your hands so this is not the end of the sermon, so don't leave and the band doesn't need to come yet. I want you to lift your hands up and say, my life 
is under the providential, sovereign direction of God. I tell you what, I have found great, great peace in that doctrine. You know, I didn't, I wasn't raised learning that. I didn't know about it. And I prayed years ago, Lord, show me something that will work in my life that will help me be successful in my Christian life. And I thought he would show me some like little, you know, principles and keys. But instead he showed me his providence in my life, that he's in control. God is in control of all things. Now, a couple little extra things that I'll mention in this story. Um, Another practical thing in the story, this is a, the big thing is God, they were where they were because God commanded them to be. God commanded them to go from place to place. Then we see when they grumble against Moses, Moses is this wonderful, meek person. And he, they quarreled at Moses. They blamed Moses for their situation and Moses replied back to them. And the second time they grumbled against Moses, then Moses doesn't respond to them. He responds and gives the complaint to the Lord. Amen. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you are, uh, somebody comes at you, somebody criticizes you, somebody comes at you, maybe it's your spouse. I don't know if you've ever had an argument, you know, in your marriage? How many, I mean, how many have, you know, you know people that have had marriage arguments before. You know, some of us, we've had that. Where maybe your spouse is having a bad day. Listen, there's going to be some days that your spouse has a bad day. They're just not like on their A game. And they say something snide to you. And here's what we can do. When somebody attacks us, our amygdala in our brain, you have this little thing called your amygdala. And it's like, it's like the passion part of your brain. And when you respond in anger, that amygdala gets inflamed and it takes over. Have you ever said a few things? You're just going to say a little something back and you can't stop yourself? Has that ever happened to you? That's a very holy crowd I've got in front of me today. <laughs> I'm suspecting some lying in this group. But... You look at Moses, the Bible says in Deuteronomy, he was the meekest man on the earth. Now, Moses wrote the book of Deuteronomy, so that's a little bit of a problem, but it's probably an editor put that in later. But he was, uh, when they attacked him, when somebody attacks you and criticizes you, you wanna, what you want to do naturally is attack them more. They say something insulting, and you say something more insulting. You up the ante. And here's what we need to learn about how to respond to being attacked. When you are attacked, slow down. The Bible says in James, be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry. The worst thing you can do when you're attacked, the worst thing you can do when you're criticized, and I have not always been done great at this. The worst thing you can do when you're attacked and you're criticizing and respond quickly and you talk over a person and you interrupt them. Remember in John chapter 8 when Jesus was there in the temple and they drugged him, a woman caught in adultery. I don't know why they didn't bring the man too. They just brought the woman and they drug her there and threw her down shamefully in front of Jesus. 
And they said, the law of Moses said she should die. What do you say? And it says in the text that they were trying to entrap Jesus. They're attacking Jesus. What is Jesus? He doesn't like saying, you talking to me? Are you talking to me? He didn't come back at those criticizing Pharisees. He got down on his knees. He slowed down, slowed down, drew in the sand. This is the only time we ever have record of Jesus writing anything. He's writing in the sand. And I don't know what he's doing. There's a lot of speculation about that. You know, is he playing tic-tac-toe or is he writing the names of the Pharisees that had committed adultery? I think he's just doodling and he's waiting. Then his father speaks to him and he stands up and he said, he who's without sin, let him cast the first stone. Slow down when you're attacked. Slow down when you're insulted. Slow down and don't respond quickly because what people need is they need validation that you hear what they say. And you lean forward and you may disagree with them, but if you can learn to listen to them, Stephen Covey says, seek first to understand before seeking to be understood. You know, sometimes all you need to do is listen. If your wife is mad or you're mad, or your husband, your wife, and they come at you, if you can just take it in and listen and say, I hear what you're saying. I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. I didn't understand that that's how you felt. All of a sudden, the escalation goes down. The Bible says this. Proverbs says, a soft answer turns away wrath. Say that with me. A soft answer turns away wrath. Now, the word soft there in Hebrew is a, it means a weak answer, a weak answer. You don't, when somebody comes at you strong, you want to come at them stronger. Amen. But the best thing to do is to give a soft response. We see Moses doing that. And when he was attacked, he took it to the Lord. He took the hurt to the Lord. You know, he could have said to the Lord, Lord, these people are I'm ready. You know, he said, they're ready to stone me. You know, when somebody attacks us, say, Lord, I've done my best in this relationship. I've done my best in this situation. And Lord, I give this to you. Instead of going back at them, he takes that and he gives it to the Lord. He gives it to the Lord. When I was learning to play tennis, I... Uh, I, you know, in high school, my dad was a pastor, Methodist pastor, and near where we lived was a Wilmington Trust bank. And on Friday nights, the parking lot was empty, so I would take my bag of tennis balls and I'd take my tennis rack and I'd go down to uh, High Street in Seaford where the Wilmington Trust bank was and the parking lot was empty, so I would hit tennis balls against the bank wall. And that bank was great tennis player, never missed that tennis. I mean, that was the best tennis player I've ever played. That was that bank. But I discovered the harder you hit the ball at the wall, the harder it comes back. The harder you hit it, the harder you go at somebody, the harder they'll come back. A soft answer 
turns away wrath. So we see in the story of Moses, we see how he was, he was patient, he was meek. And meekness is not weakness. Meekness is having your emotions under the control of the Spirit of God. And the last part of the story is, of course, we've got Moses striking the rock where the Lord told him to strike the rock. And the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that the rock is a symbol of Jesus. That the rock is a symbol of Jesus. And when uh, Jesus was smitten on the cross for our sins, he provided living water for the satisfaction of our deepest desires. The woman at the well comes to Jesus and she says to Jesus, she says, uh, you know, uh, Jesus asked her for a drink and she said, you're asking me, I'm a Samaritan. And the woman was there because she had a shameful life and she's sitting by the, the well there. And Jesus said, you're, you're coming to get water and you'll thirst again, but I'll give you water by which you'll never thirst again. And the 650,000 men standing there in front of Moses that were thirsty and their family and their wives symbolize they're a metaphor for the spiritual thirst of the human race. The human race is thirsty. They need something to meet their deepest need. And our money won't do it. John D. Rockefeller said, you know, somebody said, how much money is enough? He said, just a little bit more. Our things won't do it. I'm glad we got things. We got boats. We got all that stuff. I'm glad we got all that. That's wonderful we have that. We got nice houses. We got all this stuff. We got degrees. We do all these things. Before my dad met Jesus, you know, you know, he was always looking for something. You know, got a boat. A boat's going to do it. Well, water ski. We'll get a boat. Get, on, get a bigger boat. A boat will pull us faster. And we got a boat. And, you know, and then we, well, let's get some horses. We got quarter horses. Then we added on to the house and we took trips. My dad in his early 30s, he just, you know, materialist. He worked at DuPont's, worked overtime, you know, buying stuff, buying stuff, buying stuff, buying stuff. And then when he was in his early 30s, he, he met Jesus. Sold the boat. I wasn't a big fan of that, but he sold the boat. Sold the horses. Nothing wrong with having horses, nothing wrong with having boats, nothing wrong with having houses, nothing wrong with that. But the thing we have to remember is none of that stuff will quench our thirst spiritually. What quenches our thirst spiritually is living water. I was at the Rock the Beach on Friday night and I'm, you know, I got my little folding chair and I'm standing up worshiping. Then I sit down for a while and there's a lady that comes beside me, came beside me. And I, I don't know where she was from. She's not, I don't think she's a part of our church. She was, I'll tell you what, that woman loved Jesus. And I'll tell you what, she could not quit. She sang so loud. She was, her head was turned up high. Something had happened in her life and she loved Jesus with all of her heart. What we're thirsty for ultimately is Jesus. And I'll tell you what, I just sometimes, I just like Friday night at the beach, I just, you know, sometimes you can worship worship. And I, I wanted to move beyond just the wonderful singing and the wonderful musicians. And I wanted to look beyond them to Jesus. And I lifted my head up there at Bethany Beach and I was just beginning to just focus on Jesus. And the more I focused on Jesus, the fuller I got. 
Many of you heard me tell this story. I've told it a bunch of times. So my apologies for you long timers. There was this guy that, that uh, wanted to get out of the army in the worst kind of way. He hated the army. And he couldn't figure out how to get discharged from the army, but he came up with this idea that he would feign insanity. And so he'd go everywhere picking up things. And he would say, that's not it. He'd go into the cafeteria, he'd pick up all kinds of things and say, that's not it. And people just watched him wandering around, picking up things, saying, that's not it. He was nuts. So they finally, they sent him to the, the military psychiatrist. He's walking around the office and he's picking up the stapler. That's not it. Picked up the man's coffee cup. That's not it. Picked up pencils off the desk. That's not it. The military psychiatrist said, the man's crazy. And he handed him his discharge papers and he said, that's it. That's it. And we go through life. That's not it. This relationship, this girl, this man, that's not it. We get the degree and we get our first career. That's not it. That's not it. That's not it. And I want to just say, you know, if you're married to a wonderful person, you are married to a wonderful person. That's wonderful. I, I tell you what, my wife, Karen, is absolutely stellar. She's a rock star. She's amazing. I want you to know this, though, that your spouse cannot meet your deepest spiritual needs. And it's a big burden to put on them to make you happy. What will make you happy is being fully engaged and in love with Jesus and that'll make you a better spouse and a more content person and a better friend and a better spouse because Jesus has filled your heart. Amen. Only Jesus, only Jesus can satisfy our soul. Mick Jagger said, can't get no satisfaction. Can't get no satisfaction. How many know that you can get satisfaction with Jesus? Would you lift your hands to the Lord? Amen. Let's praise the Lord. Lift your hands to the Lord right now. Let's worship the Lord. Father, we thank you as we begin a new week that you are the living water. We don't have to search anymore. We've, we want to grow closer to Jesus. Your word says in James, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And I pray that you'll help us that are in different situations, different places in life to remember that you're providential and you're sovereign over the details of our life that where we are is not an accident, but you're with us and so we can be full of joy because you're working all things together for our good. We pray your blessing on this wonderful church this Sunday. Anoint us as we go into this brand new week. We thank you for the joy of the Lord being with us and we thank you for directing our steps and you are going to cause us to reign in glory. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. And say this with me, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen and amen. I love you guys. You guys are absolutely amazing. Uh, let's give the Lord a praise offering. Let's honor Jesus today. Lord, we honor you celebrate you. If you had a prayer need today, there's prayer over here, communion. Have a wonderful week. If you haven't signed up for the welcome lunch next week and you're new, we'd love to meet you next Sunday. Sign up before you leave. God bless you. We'll see you next week. God bless you guys. Thank you so much for joining us on the Bayshore podcast. I want to encourage you to take this message you just received and allow it to go deep into your soul and let Jesus do the deep work that only he can do. 
A special thanks to everyone that gives generously to Bayshore. It's because of you that this ministry is possible, creating life change all over the world. You can be a part of spreading the message around the world by going to bayshore.online and clicking give. For all things Bayshore, visit bayshore.online to find out what your next step may be. You can subscribe right here and share this podcast with your friends and family. Thank you again for listening. God bless you.